1: Before I get to today's show, I wanted to say hello to all of our new listeners who have found your way to taste over the past couple of months. The response has been honestly really incredible, and I wanted to thank you for being down to clown with us each week. If you want to suggest a future guest, hit me up on Instagram at Matt Rodbard or write into our inbox, hello at tastecooking.com. And if you enjoy the show, how about letting a friend know? Or dropping us a starred review or kind words on Apple or Spotify? This really does make a difference, and it means the world to us. Thanks again, and onto the show.
0: A lot of what I'm interested in doing is kind of getting people to value coffee a little bit more so that we can work in this direction. I think a lot of people feel constrained by the consumer mindset of, like, coffee should cost, you know, $8 a pound because that's what it cost most of my life, Uh, and I could buy it in a giant can in the grocery store. You're listening to The Taste Podcast,
1: I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I welcome in James Hoffman. James is the author of The Best Coffee at Home and runs one of my favorite coffee YouTubes around. Now, James is such a cool conversation because he democratizes coffee. He's okay with putting milk in coffee. He's okay with that push-button brewer. But on the flip side, he has a lot of other ideas about coffee that may just improve your at-home coffee practice. I hope you enjoy this conversation with James Hoffman. James Hoffman, welcome to the Taste Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: It's really fun to talk to you. Huge fan of your YouTube. Huge fan of coffee. Anyone who's listened to the show knows we've spoken with many in coffee. Um, it's a real passion of mine uh, to kind of educate, and that's why I'm such so drawn to the work you do on YouTube, the work you do with your books. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Um, let's get into this. What did you have today? What have you? What kind of coffee? You're recording in the UK. It's morning here. You may have had one or two things. Into your body, coffee related. What 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 have what have you been drinking?
0: Uh, I just got back from LA, so I'm drinking a, a local roaster from there called Go Get 'Em Tiger. Just had some yes drip, uh, of of one of their Ethiopian coffees this morning. A couple of brews of that just to kind of you know learn get to know it a little bit.
1: Nice. Uh, we launched our coffee issue back in 2018 at their uh, you know Silver Lake location um, or more Echo Park, uh, and those guys those guys are our dudes. So how's how's Go Get 'Em these days?
0: Pretty good. Uh, I didn't get a chance to get to the cafe, but a friend of mine works there, and we caught up, and um, it's just nice to take a little coffee home.
1: Excellent. Um, did you drink anything else interesting in L.A. when you were, when you were there?
0: Uh, I was filming something out in the desert, so my, my actual time in L.A. was pretty limited.
1: <laughs> wow. I can't wait. A cryptic. Can you say anything about your desert session?
0: I don't know if I should. Uh, All right. It was, it was kind of an experiment. Let's go with that.
1: I love that. Um I love that because in and you do with your show on YouTube, you're always uh going places to discover interesting coffee related, you're you're finding gear, vintage gear, you're you're just always exploring. So I, I bet there's something interesting happening there.
0: I mean, I hope so. But yeah, like coffee's coffee's kind of niche and also really not niche at all. It's kind of it's it's everything and it's also this weird thing that people get obsessed about.
1: It's true. And my first question really is, I want to get a sense, why is it so difficult then to talk about something that we put into our bodies one to three to six times a day?
0: I think a big part of it is that most of us quite early on in life gain a pretty rudimentary understanding of coffee. And then at some point later on, someone's like, everything you know is wrong. And it's way more complicated. And the simple thing that's just like how people start their day turns out to be just massively complex and super interesting. But you know, you know uh, challenging in a, in a bunch of ways. And people are like, well, no, 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 it's just coffee. Leave it alone. Don't make a simple nice thing in my life complicated. And, you know, from our point of view, it's usually like, well, I'm not trying to make it complicated. I just want it to be more enjoyable. But that requires like a little bit of engagement. But I think ultimately it's that. We have a pretty fixed idea of coffee quite early in our lives. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it's that fixed idea that that holds us back, and, and I love what you say. It is simply just coffee, and we do need to get down to the basics. Um, and I want to know, what have you found has worked talking about coffee? You do it so well, you, d- you democratize it, which I think is important. No one would ever call you a, a coffee snob. I don't think. I wouldn't. Maybe some have.
0: No, people, I mean, people, it's the internet. People still call me a snob. Um, people are still angry about everything. I think yes, true. What has worked well for me is understanding that I am, in many ways, ridiculous, and my <laughs> interest and passion about coffee is unusual and borderline hilarious, and and that's okay. Like I, I think it's funny too, and and you know, passion is is a great thing to to kind of get people interested in what you're doing. People who are passionate can be very compelling talking about their particular passion. But I I think being able to laugh at myself along the way makes it easier mm-hmm. to kind of be like, okay, let's just hear what you have to say. You know you're ridiculous. This is ridiculous. But now that I'm allowed to laugh, what have you actually got to say? So I think that's helped. And I think I, I kind of moved past the point of sort of expecting everyone to do the same thing or enjoy the same thing or there being a, a right way to enjoy coffee i want people to enjoy the coffee they drink more and that may send them on a particular journey but it may not and you know they may not move much past a really dark roast with a bunch of cream in it but if i can get them to enjoy that even more i count that as winning and kind of success for what i do
1: james it's such a great point of view it's why we love you and i think um having that you, you 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 democratize as i say you you engage and i think the way you um are able to make it okay to put cream in coffee, but like subtly hint that maybe you're not getting the best out of it is why uh, more people should be speaking about coffee like you. My question to start is you've written this book about coffee at home, which is is different than writing about an atlas of coffee in farms and agriculture. So I want to know just right away, how can we make our practice at home a little better?
0: It, It feels like a difficult thing to synthesize down to like one thing.
1: Um, 100% you wrote a book about it and I'm going to link to it in the show notes yeah. buy the book <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I think it's more like um, just just I think it's a, it's a mindset of like there's an opportunity here right like if you have a mindset of ooh, this could be better then I think that's going to be the game-changing thing where suddenly your approach to how you brew or, or how you even drink the coffee all that kind of stuff if you just have this at the back of your head of like this is great but it could be better and, and I could make it better and that could be fun. Then I, I I think that kind of openness of mind around this stuff is probably the most important thing and is, is the kind mm-hmm. of common characteristic amongst the kind of passionate coffee community online. And I think y- you see the pushback, most of the pushback around what I do is like, no, I like my coffee the way it is, leave it alone. And I'm just trying to be like, you can enjoy it, that's great. But uh, but surely you understand this just like, you can make it like 10% better. yeah. I'm sure there's a way. <laughs> Nothing is perfect in this world. You could you could take that journey a little bit further on. And I think once that's your mindset, once you're like, "Oh, this could be better and that could be fun to 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 go on that journey of improvement, then I think you you're on a pretty good path.
1: Yeah. And I'm going to ask you some specific questions that kind of get us into that journey of improvement, which I think is a really great way to put it. And and I just one kind of general question to start though is The pandemic definitely changed the way we interact with coffee. What do you think? Like, what what, what has it done in the positive side?
0: Oh, I think it had a really weird but strangely positive effect that was huge, which was I think people um, couldn't go to cafes suddenly and realized how valuable the coffee experience was to them. And I think a lot of people, the coffee experience was just drinking a really nice cup of coffee. Uh, For other people, it was just like that being a nice moment in their day that wasn't work and wasn't home life. It was their kind of the Mm -hmm. third space that they talked about. And I think that when we were stuck in our homes, we wanted something of the coffee experience in the house. And that meant a lot of people bought some coffee equipment, like a lot of coffee equipment got sold around the world. And people were like, oh, I should learn a little bit more about making coffee and so there was a, a, you know a massive transition from coffee out of home to coffee in home and um that's been great i think people have a greater understanding of coffee brewing a greater appreciation of both coffee itself and actually of cafes too i think yeah me how too hard i agree it can be to brew great espresso at home yep. has made a cafe very appealing like they'll come they'll do this for you and and give you a nice place to sit and something delicious to eat and and you know i don't really see the cafe competing with the home in that regards but but um yeah i i think it had a, a big positive impact and you know obviously i i was someone who benefited from people being like i want to make coffee at, at home how do i do that i'll go on the internet and uh, it seems a good number of them. found You're the guy.
1: Yeah, you're the guy. And and I think that the hand brewing wave, pun intended, because the Kalita wave, the, the right, Chemex, right. the V60s, you know, you couldn't find them on Amazon. I mean, the, the Chemex filters were, I mean, people were buying them from shops around the country in America, which was amazing because you know you couldn't f- could buy it on Amazon. You had to go to like a random shop to buy it. And I feel like hand brewing once that became part of the practice for at home, work at home fully agree with you that there's a new appreciation for origin for buying a little bit paying a little bit more for coffee Mm -hmm. and just having this moment where coffee is is more than just that morning push the button and and go thing
0: i think you know we, we talk a lot about rituals in coffee and i think um we definitely all had a time in our lives when we needed space and structure and moments of something that wasn't staring at a computer screen and i feel like coffee really neatly fit in there for so many people
1: James, can we talk about price? Um, you know, it's something I've talked about on the podcast with Jeff Watts, with Nigel Price, with Nicely Able, with Jordan Michaelman, Ashley Rodriguez. These are all people I deeply respect in coffee, uh, along with yourself. And it seems like the, the refrain with all of these conversations has been this. We do not pay enough for coffee. I'd like you to respond to that. And the second part is, what should the price be? <sighs>
0: This is, I mean, it's a really difficult question. I think the, the the neat answer is yes. We don't pay enough for coffee. We need to pay more. Um, I'm curious if you got like a consistent answer on what it should be from from everyone else, or if they were a, a bit divided across the board on that one.
1: Well, I I feel like right now, um, you know, depending on size, between eight ounces and twenty ounces, uh, a bag, um, it, it seems like the nine to fifteen dollar range. Um, is too low I think people are saying like the 40 to 50 dollar a bag price point which seems astronomical in the scale of things but given how much you get out of a bag how actually it's such an affordable luxury that was a price point that we hit I hit upon with I believe Jeff and Ashley I think Nigel was also talking about how two ounces of COE a cup of excellence coffee can you know be in the hundreds of dollars? How that makes sense given how much we pay for mediocre bourbons and really like bad macro brews at bars. We pay eight dollars for a light. So I think that that's that's kind of the 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 summary of the, our conversations. But what what do you think?
0: I think the the um, the two states in the U.S. that grow coffee are a pretty good kind of case study, which is what happens if you grow. Coffee with kind of modern day costs and overhead and cost of labor and all that kind of stuff, which is California and Hawaii and um you know quality wise, I think that the coffee from Central and South America is often superior, it's better terroir, better altitude better better all that kind of stuff but but not nearly as expensive um and so yeah i i I think you'd need to kind of double the price of coffee probably to to have it be getting towards a kind of sustainable and sensible price for the kind of modern globalized world.
1: I mean, domestic coffees are not considered by many in cafes to be prized. Do you, do you drink Hawaiian and Californian coffees? Because you just don't see them on menus too often.
0: No, I mean, they, they're, they're hyper niche, they're hyper expensive. Yeah. Uh, and they, they, they don't have the kind of blind cup tasting kind of cup quality of a lot of other yeah. coffees. Um, but that's kind of interesting that suddenly they have to charge what they charge. You know, yeah. Hawaii gets away with a little bit more because I think if you go to Hawaii and have a nice time and you want to take a bag of coffee home, you're buying mm-hmm. more than a bag of coffee in that particular moment. But um, yeah, I, I, I think those are semi-sustainable coffee-producing, you know, parts of the world compared to many others. So yeah, it's 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 a difficult one. It's one where you know, a lot of what I'm interested in doing is kind of getting people to value coffee a little bit more so that we can work in this direction. I think a lot of people feel constrained by the consumer mindset of like coffee should cost, mm-hmm. you know, $8 a pound because that's what it cost most of my life. Uh, and I could buy it in a giant can in the grocery store and that's coffee and this is coffee and these are the same thing, right? Um, but in terms of that wider just shift, yeah, I think I think Thirty dollars a pound, probably and up, is yeah. where we'd be looking.
1: Yeah, I love that we've we've set the baseline. A good question to me, what others were saying, because it, we're never going to have a consensus. But I think the idea generally is more is better. Um, and as as you said, more people start to homebrew, buy the subscriptions, buy the stuff online. They're going to maybe pay a little bit more. It's going to become part of their practice.
0: Yeah, I think your point earlier on about it being a kind of tremendous value luxury is, is kind of worth noting that the cheapest coffee might be 6 to $8 a pound, but some of the best coffee in the world is not 600 It's 60 <laughs> you know what I mean? Like 10 times from the very cheapest to some of the best in the world. There's not a big multiplier. You can apply, you know, you think about whiskey or wine or anything else where there's a sort of broader Cultural capital to the product, you have these much bigger multipliers, but coffee, the best coffee in the world, for what it is, I think is very affordable.
1: hundred percent agree. you know you can get a an auction coffee from you know southern Ethiopia, yeah, for like forty five dollars for a few ounces. That gives you like you know several mornings or afternoons of pleasure compared to like that really mediocre marketed bottle of tequila right that you paid the same amount, right? I mean, it's just crazy, right?
0: Yeah, we I think we 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 still value certain mind altering drugs above others, with yeah, exactly. really good reason, I would say.
1: It I love that you bring up the drug element of coffee because it certainly is, and it's 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 something that we need to recognize more, just in creating value, especially with the legalization of cannabis. Um, <laughs> right,
0: right. I I think I, I also think that even when you get very passionate about flavor, you can't deny the other aspect of coffee consumption. You know, I feel like doing what I do online. There's still so many conversations about caffeine and people's concerns about it, people's interest in it. It's still a massively motivating factor in coffee drinking, and yet I feel like we we the sort of specialty end doesn't really want to talk about it too much because we're interested in flavor. But I think we need to talk about it because it's a big part of of how and why we drink coffee.
1: Truly, and it leads to a question. And and let's get in this section, I'd like to get into some of the X's and O's of home brewing and what you cover in your great book, The Best Coffee at Home. And the first thing is, you know, when somebody says to you that they like strong coffee, what do you say to them?
0: Uh, I, I always hope for the opportunity for a conversation. And so I'd be like, what, sure. when, when you say strong, do you mean like, like a, like a really kind of harsh, bitter flavor, like you like a little kick in the cup or you just want a ton of flavor in there? Because it, I need to understand if they're looking for a darker roast or if they want something that really they can brew and effectively make into a genuinely strong cup.
1: Right. It's having that conversation and asking more questions is is definitely my approach. I think strength seems to hold people back because they don't think about sweetness and flavor profile; they think about bold and harshness. Right. But but I mean. How do you deal with the term sweetness, which Ashley and I had a great conversation about that, and I'll link to that in the show notes.
0: I think um, the the tricky bit about sweetness is I I think that the sweetness in specialty coffee is present and obvious, but also a different kind of sweetness than a lot of people would associate with sweetened coffee. And I feel like when you sell very strongly on sweetness, people are expecting almost a little table sugar in there. You know what I mean? Uh, And for me... The, one of the best things about specialty coffee is one of the hardest things to talk about, which is almost the absence of defect, right? Like, there's nothing. Yep. There's nothing wrong with it, and that's amazing. And that that's not like a ringing endorsement of a product. Like, there's, no,
1: there's nothing <laughs> right.
0: wrong with it. Um, but that's kind of a big part of it. And I think when you take away bitterness and harshness and astringency and negative flavors, you end up with this very positive characteristic that you're like, oh, it's kind of like it's sweet. And, and that's the difficult bit to communicate because it's not, you know, the minute you add a few grains of sucrose to a cup of coffee, you're like, oh, no, that's that's sweetened. I can taste that. Yeah. It's a totally different thing. But this sweetness, I think it's still the right word for how it tastes. But it, it is almost, to me, a, a tied entirely into this sort of absence of negative flavor that comes with it.
1: Two interesting points first is just the idea of the word sweetness which is a, a total disservice I agree fully because sweetness in most lexicon is adding sugar which is not what you're talking about it's almost like umami when that became part of the vogue to talk about food it was like this unknown flavor but we knew it was good right. so that's interesting the other part is just the idea of um, the absence of something the absence of like that is like we are a, a culture in food that strives for extreme flavor profiles, be it extreme bitter or an extreme, like we we want our age, this and that age marks means extremities. But like with coffee, it's the opposite. It's purity. So interesting, James. I, I love that point.
0: Yeah, I, I think um, we end up also then once we kind of get into this world, then chasing the extremes of of that world where you have these super acidic coffees or you've got these extremely weird fermented coffees and mm-hmm. those kind of things. But yeah, at its heart, for me, that that this, that this sort of, um, yeah, the absence of defect. I really, I need a better phrase than that. I don't know what it is. Yeah. It is, that is the correct phrase in my head. It's just the bad it's one a, to say out loud. But yeah. It's a communications a thing. part of it. And, and, and I think that the thing I like about that is that you do a tasting with someone and, and you tell them to look for like cherries or pear or caramel and they're like, it tastes hmm. like coffee. But if you say... Isn't this one less bitter? Isn't it less harsh? They're like, oh, yeah, it is. I get it. It's smooth. And you're like, great, yeah. beautiful word. Because it it, it is soft and, and approachable and friendly and, like, it's kind to you. And cheaper coffee is not. And it needs a little yeah. buffering with things like cream and sugar because it has that harshness, that bitterness, that whatever it's going to be, that defect mm. to it that makes it less enjoyable.
1: Yeah. I frame it, like, in spatial, um, like, association. Like, there's the coffee you get at, literally at the hospital, when you're, And then there's a coffee you get at McDonald's, and then there's the coffee you get at, like, a diner or an OK restaurant, and then there's a coffee you get at, like, Intelligentsia. Right. And, like, they're all – like, that's the way I kind of look at it, right? It's, like, the different spaces you consume it. It's weird. So, James, um, what do you say to somebody who says they like, quote-unquote, Guatemalan coffee, which, you know, I love my mom. She always says this, and very challenging um, statement because – it doesn't say much.
0: No. And, and early on in my career, I was, I was re- this was like a hobby horse for me of like, how dare you hmm. desire the coffee from one particular country? You know, right. like Brazil, <laughs> as an example, is like two thirds right. the size of Europe. It'd be like, I want some European wine. No one would sell you that. You know, like it's, it's, it's this. But I think for, for me, if I'm genuinely trying to get to the bottom of what they want, then I have to understand what they they think of as Guatemalan coffees. I'm like, do you always buy the same bag from the same roaster? If you're at the store, do you just head towards anything that's from Guatemala and you generally have a good time uh, to try and understand what taste association they have built to that origin? Because some origins do have kind of taste characteristics. Others have a massive diversity of flavor. And, and you know, Guatemala is one w- which is actually pretty diverse and you can go from the kind of heavier, chocolatier end through to fruitier things to more floral things. So that that's kind of harder. But if someone says, I like coffees from Br- Brazil or I like coffees from Ethiopia as an example, Ethiopia is a great example, then you probably like something fruity and floral and fun and light and, you know, interesting and complex and unusual. That's good mm-hmm. information. Um, so for me, that, that the question has to be, Tell me what you think of when you think of Guatemalan coffee. Is it this one brand? Is it just any coffee from Guatemala you have have a good time with? What is it?
1: Well said. I think definitely asking more questions once again is the way to kind of get to that point. Um, let's get to talk about brewing at home. I want to get a little bit of your take on kind of the most. What's your favorite way first to brew at home to 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 hand brew coffee or even make espresso? I'm not going to even go Uh, there. You can be either one. No espresso at
0: home. No espresso at home for me. All right, thank you. We'll get to that. Is work in a number of levels for me. Um, Favorite way to make coffee at home? Still probably like a V60 or a pour over of some kind. Mm -hmm. I I don't think I'm overly wedded to like one in particular. There's usually a few floating around from work. Um, But yeah, I, I it's just enough ritual for me. Like it's just enough where I have to pay a little attention and take a little time, and that's good. And I still enjoy, and it sounds weird, pouring water onto coffee uh, after 20-odd years of doing it. But like I still just enjoy that process. And I don't really know why, but I think it's fun. And I'm not I'm not alone in that, which is reassuring. So, yeah, Absolutely I, I not. think for me, if I'm making one or two cups, it's a pour over.
1: Yeah, I agree hard. And what about like batch brewing, push-button brewing? Is there any... Is there any positive with that way of brewing at home?
0: 100%. I think there are now genuinely good little batch brewers out there. And I think there's a a bunch of different scenarios in which they fit really well. Um, I I think if you need a lot of coffee, it's a great way to go. If you don't like making coffee before you've had coffee, then I think uh, a batch brewer is great. You can set it up the night before. Yeah, Yeah. you'll lose a little bit of quality from the the coffee being ground at like 11 p.m. and brewed at 6. But uh, ultimately at 6 a.m., I'm not sure anyone's taste buds are at their true sharpest. You know what I mean? So like a little timer function coming downstairs to fresh brewed coffee. It's a glorious thing. If you're up early.
1: It's a wonderful thing.
0: It's a wonderful thing. So yeah, I I think that historically the super cheap coffee makers for home were not the best, especially at brewing more interesting coffee, specialty coffees. They were kind of fine at brewing darker roasts and kind of cheaper coffees. But but that has shifted and you need to spend a little bit more, but not like a crazy amount more to get a really good little batch brewer at home. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you use it so much. Let's just stress that point. This is like a daily ritual. Absolutely. So you, you would likely invest in many things uh, that you use daily, but sometimes coffee is forgotten. Um you recently published this amazing video series. I think it was two parts and I'll link to it in the show notes. You rated thirty-two coffees from American grocery stores. Yeah. Which I think is so interesting because it was all blind. We're talking Folgers, Chuck Full of Nuts, Starbucks. What did you learn from this from this uh this test?
0: Uh, I learned a few things, actually. Some of them were super interesting. Um I learned that the spectrum of roast was much broader than I anticipated and actually that the spectrum of quality was much broader than I had anticipated too. Um you know that there was some really surprisingly good tasting coffee there in a in a sort of world I had kind of written off I kind of went into it expecting mm-hmm. to have a bad time um you know I I, I was broadly, I mean, I had some coffees I didn't like at all, but I would say I was broadly pleasantly surprised by the kind of overall experience.
1: You tasted Dunkin', just to name one, the original blend, and you had a really positive response to it, which, I, I mean, your response, it was all blind, genuinely positive when it was positive. You you liked some of this coffee, relatively speaking, right? And Dunkin' was one, and McCafe, which is the McDonald's house brand, made it through as well to uh, the not the second round, at least.
0: So do you want to know the really interesting thing about these coffees? Uh, Yeah. The thing that I will at some point explore further in a video. These are not the same coffees being brewed in store. In fact, in many cases, it's not even the same roasting company producing the coffee. So a different coffee company will roast coffee for Duncan uh, or Tim Horton or whoever for the in-store drip that you're being served and someone else entirely will produce the retail product. It won't be the same raw coffees. It won't be the same roast profiles. It will just say Duncan on the front.
1: It makes perfect sense because you want you probably as a company are making more money from the direct to consumer or the, the the CPG model. So you want that that product to be a little bit better than what you're serving in the restaurant, which is pure utility. That's just my take. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I I, I, I see that argument. It just seems confusing to set two different <laughs> right. expectations for what, like, Duncan's coffee tastes like. You know, if I get a cup yeah. in store and I then I like it and I buy a bag and take it home and it tastes a little different, that's kind of confusing. Equally, if I buy a bag and I'm like, oh, I should just check out the coffee from Duncan and I have a very different experience, then that's also kind of confusing. It's just, yeah, it, the whole world of, of like, how the big corporate coffee manufacturer works, it wrecks my mind. Like it, Starbucks is one of the yeah. biggest roasters in the world, and yet Nestle roasts a bunch of coffee for them. And you're like, what? Yeah. Why, what? Why does Why does yeah. this happen? This makes no sense. You can roast your own coffee, Starbucks. You've got all the facilities all over the world, but somehow Nestle can do it cheaper or theoretically, for whatever they think good is, better. I don't know. It's just fascinating.
1: Interesting. We'll let you tap into that 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 reporting piece because i think i'd love to find out the answer and i'm not going to spoil the winner of that of that uh of that test and i'll link to it again in the show notes to see which one won i think that's amazing um let's get into let's talk about espresso yeah um okay like a lot of a lot of complicated thoughts we've talked about this with jimmy butler with with ashley rodriguez and jeff watson many in coffee and especially coffee um have a love hate relationship with espresso so, first question to me is how the fuck do you taste espresso i I don't understand it personally
0: how do you mean what where, where where do you find the challenge it's just it's overwhelmingly intense
1: yeah i I don't find a a, a structural nuance um it, with the coffee um out of that with when it's pressurized and brewed that way i just i find it i i know bad espresso um and it goes back to your absence of of blemishes and absence of um uh, how pure coffee tastes better. I just can't wrap my head around what a good espresso tastes like.
0: So I think I think one of the annoying and persistent myths of coffee is that espresso, if you don't drink it quickly, it dies, right? Uh, and and that's that's just not true. If you drink espresso really hot or or pretty fresh, it's so hot that it's actually much harder to taste the nuance in it anyway. And that's good news if the if the espresso isn't like perfect because it's too hot to taste some of the imperfections. But if you let espresso cool down a little bit it gets way easier to taste mm-hmm. and generally what i'm chasing with espresso is this uh, you know slightly nebulous term but like balance right like i want i want a little bit of everything going on there i want a little bit of acidity but not dominant acidity i want a little bit of bitterness but not dominant bitterness i want some sweetness playing in the middle there i want nice texture and if i get all of those things generally i'm happy in any additional flavors any kind of character that comes from the coffee itself is a benefit, is, is a bonus. It's just enjoyable mm-hmm. to me. But, but good espresso is, is hard to do well because you're just working at these very high concentrations. It's high concentrations of it's coffee solubles, but also high concentrations of acid as well. So it's really easy for espresso to just be unpleasantly, dominantly sour. And that's just, that's just no fun in my book
1: yeah I think we you write about the confusion between bitter and sour with espresso and how that sour we perceive as sour can be sometimes prized, but unfortunately, it's not It's not great in experience wise to have an overly sour shot of espresso
0: not at all and I think for a lot of people, they'll sip it. they'll be like, I don't like that there is a there is a dominant attacking taste, it's coffee. What's wrong with coffee? Usually, oh, it's usually bitter. And so they're like, oh, this coffee is too bitter. And, and right. for years, this drove baristas, you know, crazy because we had said as an industry, if you get too much acidity, you've underextracted it. And if you get too much bitterness, you've overextracted the coffee. And there's loads of people being like, this espresso is too bitter, it's too bitter, it's too bitter. And they're like, How is this? How am I over-extracting this coffee? It's not brewing too slow. And the truth was, they were just doing the opposite. And so it's 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 frustrating feedback to get, which is like, this coffee's too bitter. And you kind of want to be like, Well, do you mean <laughs> the sides of my tongue tingle and my mouth is watering and I'm sort of it's been a bit like biting into the side of a lemon? And they're like, Oh, yeah, no, that's it, that's it. And you're like, great, that's that is sourness, and that's <laughs> the problem that you, you have right now. We'll fix the espresso or whatever, but like, um, yeah, it is a confusing thing
1: it's so, and then to add another layer, let's just go there because when we talk about espresso, we're talking about shots out of the out of the machine just on the counter, but most people, when you're thinking about espresso, it's you're adding milk, you're adding dairy or you're adding non dairy right. and you're adding um something that is has absolutely erases any of the th- the items we're talking about the last five minutes, which is the flavor profiles of a shot. How do you square that away? And I think the big complication is that that is where bars make their money, is from these drinks that we, of course, love. We love cortados. We love lattes. We love a cappuccino before nine. Like, it's part of our culture. But when you're thinking about tasting coffee, which you write about extensively, it complicates
0: matters. For sure. I mean, it, to do, to kind of really understand the inherent value of a more interesting coffee, once you've put four, six, eight ounces of milk on top, it, it yeah, it's impossible. Um, but but from my point of view i'm back to like i need you to value this thing i need you to enjoy it that little bit more that's back to where you you know it gets easier to push the angle of like isn't this sweet don't you have a load of flavor but not too much bitterness isn't this all of these good things and and i think for for people who don't yet want to drink black coffee i i don't want to tell them that what they're doing is wrong because that ends our relationship Right, that that yeah. ends. There's no future conversation. If I've been like, "Hey, that thing that you really like that we have sold you and taken your money for," that's wrong. That's the incorrect way to do this. You rightly would call me an ass and would not wish to hmm. come back to my coffee shop. So I have to, you know, however I'm going to do this. I have just to make you curious. That's the that's the 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 pathway for me. When you're like. Okay, I'm. You know, what is the deal with all of these different coffees, or what is the deal with this coffee that you're selling over here, and or, or why did I get this, you know, guest coffee that made my cappuccino taste like blueberries? Like, what what happened here? Mm. I need a question because once you ask me a question, you're fair game, and we can have an interesting conversation. We but, can, but mm. I have to leave you curious, and so I'm totally on board with with milk into coffee, uh, and I, I you know, let's be honest. Milk is genuinely sweet. Fat does create a really nice texture. Foamed milk is really enjoyable to drink when it's done right. That is, hedonically, a delightful thing. Like like a really great cappuccino is a very enjoyable experience. And I can't deny that. It's not the, the sort of the, the transparency of flavor that you would get from drinking black coffee. But I can't deny it's as close to dessert as is socially acceptable at, uh, first thing in the morning. You know, and so if you enjoy it, if it's, if it's valuable to you, I think we're winning. If I can make you curious, even better. Love it, James. Thank you
1: for sharing all that, because I think you definitely democratize it once again um, in the way that um, takes that like coffee snob snobbery out of the, the equation, which I think a lot of people associate when we talk about coffee, about snobbery and about milk. I mean, whenever I mess up a, a hambrew and I overextract and it just tastes bad, I just add a little milk and it makes it better. It, it just makes so it. It fixes it, and I, lo- I love it. I, I love I love adding milk to coffee sometimes. So I, I'm with you. A uh, question about flavored coffees. I feel like there is a bit of a rising tide towards moving, especially coffee moving towards flavored coffees. Ironically or not, but I just feel people are talking about hazelnut coffee for whatever reason. Are you observing this at all?
0: This is, and and this is said with no. Um, sort of a <laughs> subtext or anything else. I, I feel like a distinctly North American thing. I do not, in the UK or Europe, It's just never really been a thing. Like we've never just, I, I'm sure it is available, but, but it's never in coffee shops. It's never really in grocery stores. So I, I don't really ever see flavored coffees. I think specialty is, is kind of going about it in this really interesting way where you're starting to see some producers infuse things into the green raw coffee which is somehow, you know, which is kind of interesting, uh, mostly because it's a way for a producer to make more money rather than someone down the line making more money. And generally speaking, and pro producers making more, more money whenever they can. But I feel like we're still mostly in a space where people either want coffee to be cheap, and, and then kind of tempered the kind of the badness tempered by sugar or potentially flavorings, or people want coffee to be as coffee as possible. Uh, and that's about transparency of flavor, of terroir, all of that kind of stuff. So I haven't seen that the same way.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, to your point about uh, flavored coffees, I think it is truly North American. And and I grew up going to a place called Gloria Jean's Coffee Beans in the mall. And like hazelnut coffee in like 1995 was like my first coffee. And my god, I loved it. I loved hazelnut coffee.
0: I've never, I've never had like a like. I, I, I've I've had a bag. I've smelled it. I've never just had someone serve me flavored coffee. My whole life, I probably should James. do that at some point. James,
1: I mean, if you're ever in New York, I'm just going to hand deliver uh, a, a, a a you know a bag and hand brew you some hazelnut coffee. All right, there's. I'm, I'm I think I know some chefs who who actually. Talk about it, like like in between services, just loving, and they call it shit coffee, but like loving just a hazelnut and milk. It's almost like its own food group.
0: Yeah, I could see it being like a whole other thing. Like, and and I feel like coffee has space for whole other things. Like, I don't mind a frappuccino. I think they can be a good time. People get you know upset about them, but I'm like, no, no, it's like a lot of sugar and and whatever in a in a cup, but it's a nice time. Uh, and so yeah, like uh, you know, I, I I think my problem ends up being intellectually when. It's a way to justify buying cheaper, more exploitative coffee and that, you know, like you like, and then adding value to it away from origin. That's when, you know, part of me gets a little less comfortable with it. But mm-hmm. again, if people are having a good time, I can work with that. A few
1: more questions. Broad question. How do we as a culture get more people to pay attention to specialty coffee Is it through celebrity? I mean, we get the George Clooney push-button bullshit, but we also get guys like Jimmy Butler um, who are doing um, amazing work with their own... Like, he has this this company, Big Face. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's changing the way a lot of people who maybe haven't thought about the younger generation thinking about specialty coffee. Can you point to any other examples of of the way coffee is, quote-unquote, going mainstream in an interesting way?
0: Yeah, I think there's been a... Uh, I think the most obvious kind of coffee brand in the US would probably be Chamberlain Coffee, which is Emma Chamberlain, who's kind of transcended from being a sort of massive YouTuber into someone kind of doing Vogue's red carpet questions at the, at the Met Gala. Yeah. Uh, and Chamberlain Coffee's been really interesting as a kind of way to see how a younger generation wants to see itself reflected in the coffee it drinks, right? Like um, in, in loads of different cultures... You've seen the kind of push pull of like uh, I think Japan is a good example. So like the the sort of the the big rise of specialty coffee in Japan was all centered around espresso because hand drip coffee was was how your parents made it, and there was right. this pushback of like I don't I'm not them I'm different to them I'm not going to make coffee like them. I, I, coffee's still a massive part of my life, but it's going to be different. And you know here we've seen uh, I feel like cold brew has been a big part of that transition where like just normalizing drinking loads of coffee all the time, which obviously I'm on board with, but but mm-hmm. I feel like the brands and the look and the kind of conversations about how coffee tastes or why you pick this over that, that is, that is sort of changing to reflect the generations drinking it. And I think that's interesting. I think coffee has seemed to be um, an easy influencer brand opportunity. I think there's kind of a few big YouTubers who've launched kind of coffee brands now. Uh, and I guess there's an ecosystem out there to kind of roast coffee and put it in packages that with their face on or whatever uh, to make that relatively easy to do. And in a world obsessed with recurring revenue, then yeah. of course coffee makes sense. It's something people drink every day. And so if you, as a as a YouTuber or an internet celebrity or celebrity or whatever you want to be, can find a way into people's homes every single day, then you can actually build a business you know, that way rather than trying to sell a hoodie or a t-shirt or all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think coffee's been interesting as a a vehicle for that. And I think we'll see more and more and more of it.
1: Yeah, and it's not all bad. I mean, I love that you're saying I mean there's all this white space in this industry that you care so deeply about and this opportunity to to grow appreciation, be it through ready to drink um coffees through influencers on TikTok. I mean, even even that can't be that bad. It's getting people away from folders, not to pick on that brand, but or chock full of nuts, or, or these brands that maybe aren't giving a shit about sourcing the way that we hope they would. Maybe this ready to drink brand will actually give the farmer a little bit of spotlight, like Jimmy Butler has.
0: Right. That would be that would be good. I think the tricky bit is that you know y- you can't care about everything, right? Like you can't. There's too many things in the world. It's all too interesting, and so you you don't have enough attention or care to care about everything and and if we say specialty is only successful when people deeply care about it then we massively limit the audience because you know people care deeply about cars or shoes or a bunch of other hobbies that they have right like this you know I'm not obsessive about every single thing that I eat drink buy whatever else I can't do it my brain breaks um but if we can make uh, if we can make coffee a positive part of your day that that is worth the time and attention that you do give it that gives us a chance to be a sustainable industry and so yeah however we get there i'm kind of open to that
1: love that james I, this is just why i think we all just love your point of view and your perspective um you always have a great high level thought like that so thank you very much i'm i'm gushing a little bit but i, I just really love coffee so much and i love the way you talk about it, and you're such an amazing supporter of the industry. I just love it.
0: That's very kind of you. Thank you.
1: James, we asked all guests on the Taste podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no crushing deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited money to make this project happen, what would that book be?
0: I'm, I'm torn between would my project be a coffee project or would it just be another kind of fascination of mine?
1: Uh, I'd love to hear the latter. I'd love to hear the latter. If you want to go, if I want, if I could, oh, may probe you and push you in that direction.
0: Uh, I was like, I think it was Dan Barber said that like American cuisine is ultimately damned by its, 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 its destroyed by plenty. Like it never had to work yeah. hard for flavor. It never it, it always had the choicest cuts, yeah. right? It, there was always plenty, and you take like a lot of French cooking is born out of. Well, we have a little bit of this pig left over. How do mm-hmm. we make it good? And I and you know, there's a lot of um, culinary history around okay we don't have much to work with here let's work a little harder let's be a little clever in how we do this but i don't really know with i'm kind of fascinated by that um, but i don't really know what the the cookbook of that is i guess the the most surprising ways to make terrible things delicious
1: ah Terrible things being terrible, uh, like the uh, awful, the, the bits. awful
0: fruit just like difficult vegetables or, you know what I mean? Like uh, As a species, we have a long history of being like, this is awful, but I'm not going to give up. You know what I mean? I'm going to keep going. I'm going to work this out. I'm going to do all like olives. Like, I don't know how we got to olives. I probably should learn that one day. But I've eaten an <laughs> olive off a tree, which no one should ever do because it's no. one of the worst things you can ever do. I didn't know. I was young. Mm. I was naive. Yeah. I just learned I liked <laughs> olives. I was like, there's an olive tree. And I was like, no. well, how did we How did we work out how to make olives good? Why do we keep persisting? I don't know. There's a, I'm fascinated by the persistence. So many, like, um, baking recipes fall apart if you don't hit a really specific ratio. How how, how did we work out that? Why did we keep trying? Yeah. After so many collapsed souffles, why was someone like, no, yeah. no, no, this should work, with no good reason to think that it would. They persisted. It's, and I, I, I think that's that's the, the the history of persistence in the face of failure is really interesting to me in in cooking
1: 18th century france did not have tiktok did not have distraction no, <laughs> and they, they could they could focus <laughs> but, you know, it's
0: the belief that some way you're going to get to good and you're like why would you think that why would you think one yeah. day a souffle will happen but then it does you know like, that was amazing well done
1: james hoffman thank you for joining the taste podcast
0: thank you so much for having me I really enjoyed my time